0: everybody. Jordan Skinner here with another awesome episode of the Crushing It in Construction podcast, a podcast dedicated to the construction industry where I interview amazing guests from within the industry that share their experience, their wisdom, and their insights that'll help you, the listener, either grow within your career or grow within your business. So no matter where you are in the industry, there is always something valuable to learn from our guests and their stories. Now, This week, I have quite a character on the show. I think he has probably one of the most interesting backstories and segues into the construction industry that I've heard. He started out as a home builder, then ventured off into the medical field and actually became a registered nurse, and then somehow found his way back into the construction space and started working in civil construction and mining. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode with Colin Ritson. G'day, Colin. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to having a bit of a chinwag with you today. do it. So for everybody that doesn't know you yet, could you just tell us who you are and what it is that you do in your own words? We're an earthworks
1: contractor up here in central Queensland. We've found ourselves in a little town called Moorumba and we have some fairly long-term contracts with some of the major mining companies here across a range of their sites. And We're classed as civil and mining contractors. We do predominantly civil work on the mines. We don't do the big, heavy stuff. You don't see big trucks, big diggers, big... Overburden, pre-strip, we do detailed civil work, dams yeah. and drains and roads and mine services, a bit of everything, but it's all in that. Typically, you would call it a smaller space. When it comes to mining, probably bigger than what you see on construction jobs around the state. When you drive around to see roadworks, it's slightly bigger stuff than that, but it's not the mining stuff.
0: All the good stuff. You and I were chatting in the pre interview you were telling me about a couple of scrapers that are meant to be here in March that aren't even being built yet. Have you had
1: any uh, news on them? No news on those. There's always been a bit of a 12-month lead time on new capitalist rapists. This is not just a color written problem. This is a nationwide, probably a worldwide problem, I imagine.
0: Now, you and I were chatting during the pre-interview, and I think you'd have to have one of the most interesting backstories of how you eventually wound <laughs> up in civil construction <laughs> and construction in general Yeah. that I think I've heard. So could you tell everybody where you started your career and how you've wound up doing what you're doing currently?
1: <laughs> well... That's probably the most interesting part of the story, because everybody can buy bit of yellow stuff and go out and jump a bit of dirt around. <laughs> I left school and got a job in a supermarket packing groceries. After about a year of that, I managed to land the apprenticeship as a carpenter. This is in Tasmania, so I moved away from home and just got my licence, so I was 17, and moved away from home and started my, my apprenticeship as a carpenter, a four-year apprenticeship. And that was typically what you did back when you left school in those days if you didn't go to uni. Got into the building industry, travelled around a bit, worked on construction sites in Queensland, went back to Tassie, got married, had a family, and then got mixed up with a gentleman that was a paramedic. He was a carpenter, but had done paramedic work in West Australia. I got talking about being paramedic, and I thought, wow, that sounds like a great career. I could see myself doing that, because the roster was four on, four off. I thought I could build a fair few houses in my spare time. So I rolled into the ambulance station back in those days, because the ambulance station was adjacent to the hospital to... See if they'd give me a start. But long well, story short, sure. they said, look, unless you do formal qualifications, you're wasting your time. We're not going to give you a job. So that was the end of it. And at the time we had a family friend that was a nurse educator in the hospital based training system. And she got wind of this one day and suggested that I should go nursing. And of course, you can imagine me. I was 27, young family. I was out there putting the world on fire with my building game and mixing it with all the construction workers. And we're talking in 1987. Right, we're not talking today where male nurses are common, but back then they were rare. And so here was me, who hooed that idea initially. But over the course of about a year, I thought, more I thought about it, I thought, well, what do I got to learn? I'll give it a go. So I applied and got checked into a nurse training school, which was one of the last training schools in the hospital based system. That was me, packed all the building gear away and put on my little nurse uniform and off I went. Swung into school with 12 other students, half of which were mature age, half of which were blokes, but all these young ladies, here I was. And pretty much fair to say that I hated it. It wasn't really what I wanted to do, and my end in- game was not to be there. It was to be over over here and stuck it out for the duration of the program because I figured i have taken someone's job. I'm not going to drop out. I'm going to see it through. And because we were the last group of nurses in the hospital-based training system, the hospital was short. because I went to university after that. You see, so there were no graduate nurses coming on. So we were kind of like the slaves in the salt mine. And so as we progressed through our three years of training, we got to the last six months of our training and we had not done any of the specialty areas like theatre, ICU, accident, emergency, maternity psych or the ambulance. So I went to the director of nursing and said, hey, look, we're nearly out of time. What are we doing about this? And it had slipped past under the radar. So suddenly we got allocated to all these specialty areas and I ended up in the operating room and it just like the light flicked on. It was a different world for me. It's no patients. (laughs) Who wants to be dealing with patients and relatives? It's people and equipment and procedures. And I got in there and it was just like this is a different world and fell in love with the place. So I spent about 15 years after that in different stages in the operating room. But all the time I'm doing this, I'm building and selling houses, and I built a very good relationship with another throat surgeon. So we ended up joining forces and going off to property development, and we built and sold houses. He had the money, and I had the skills. So we ended up doing developments in line with residential houses, and we progressed with units, and we did multiple units, and then we did bigger. And then we bought a farm, and we did some subdivision. And because that was a rural subdivision, we had to knock a few trees down. So I rang a bloke, a relative of my wife. He had a logging business, so I ran to find out who I should use in the local region to pull these trees down, and he said, oh, I'll come and do it myself. So he rolled up with his machine and he'd just sold his business and it was a loose end, and because of a family connection, we had a knowledge of what people had done in the earth-moving industry in Queensland with strapers. So that was the beginning of this concept of I
0: said to Richard, well, why don't we buy a couple of bits of machinery and you can go and manage it and we'll see how we go." Was coming from nursing and coming from even residential construction I think a lot of people outside of the industry coming in don't recognise or understand like the cost that's associated with like running those sorts of machines. Was that a massive eye-opener for you once you started getting into it? I look back and think, man, like, we were done. There was something we ever did. I sort of joke.
1: If you stand back now and assess the risk and looked at that with what I know now, there were a myriad of people that stood on the sidelines and said, these blokes will go broke. Now, yeah, I think... Someone rolled into town in the same scenario that I was back then, I would be standing on the sidelines saying these bikes will go broke because I had no idea. No idea.
0: Did you originally ever have any ambitions to run a business? Like let alone in construction? Like was that ever part of the plan? If
1: you're asking me if I had a vision of ending up where I am now, absolutely not. I was running my own kind of building business. We employed employing two or three people and we are doing property development. You could say, I suppose, that it's a business, but it was pretty labour-intensive for two or three people, so it was a small-time operation. We bought these couple of machines, and i had done the numbers
0: on my spreadsheet, mate, and I worked out I was going to be a multimillionaire in a couple of years, and we'd be retired. You know, that's how it all worked. So you've got these two scrapers. What are some of the different stages that the company's gone through from where it was then to where it is now? Like, what are the different stages and progressions you've gone through? In hindsight, we had not funded enough support equipment to support
1: these two machines. We thought we'd go buy two machines and go to work, which you'd probably do if you go buy a brand-new Moxie or brand-new Cat digger or something new. You'd probably do that. But we bought 1986 model scrapers in 2004 with 25,000 hours on them, so that was never going to work. We ended up buying a third scraper as a spare, and then we bought a fourth scraper so that we had two sets of trim powers, and then I'm looking at the numbers... And thinking we need new machines. So we went off and bought two G-series scrapers with the current model back in the day. We paid an exorbitant price for them, 6,000-hour machines, got them landed in Australia and put them to work, but they broke down as well. We never had the infrastructure. We never had proper workshop facility. We never had a proper service truck. Yeah, in hindsight, we should have had a whole lot more infrastructure in place to support them. So obviously we've got all that now. We've got a fully equipped workshop with fitters and cranes and got
0: all the gear you need to minimise your downtime. And what was one of the first big projects that you guys got where you thought, cool, we're getting a bit of a solid footing under us now?
1: Yeah. I remember it because we're bumming around all over the country, right? We're working for Abbey Group back in the day and we're working on the highway jobs at all Wodonga and Bullard Dealer and Coffs Harbor and Two machines. We're bumming up and down the road and like spending any spare time and money driving between sites, just keeping these things going, really. We had a connection that through the import of our Two G-series scrapers put us in touch with somebody in one of the mines up here, and we ended up in the Bowen Basin working on a BHP mine site. That was, I suppose, I think when I thought, well, we must have some credibility to end up in this situation.
0: And how did that project go? It was a good one in the end.
1: Yeah, well, we were subbies to a company called Wapac, who no longer work in this mining space anymore. They're still with construction. That was a company to work for. We were just planning to hire an operators and took to care of maintenance. Yeah. So there was no risk potential okay. for us. We just turned up and did the work.
0: Yeah. Was there ever a point when you were growing the business in the early days or even later, was there a point where you thought, oh, shit, what have I done? Like we've pulled the trigger, we've done what we're doing, we're a few years in and, you know, was this a mistake?
1: <laughs> well, so without being too detailed here with people, there was a business partner that did a run. By this stage, I'd moved from Tasmania to Queensland. I'm doing property development and construction. I'm providing a lot of administrative support and off-site support. For this business, we had six scrapers by this stage. The same guy that got us the first gig up here for Wattpack had transitioned to a different company and he rang us and said, We've got a topsoil strip on one of the mines up here. Would your scrapers be available? And we said, Yes, they are. It was the first time in five years that we ended up with all our machines on one project. They rolled into this mine up here to so do the topsoil strip. And about five weeks after that had occurred, my business partner. Had did a runner. He just literally packed up and left. And it was at that point I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, because we tipped in a lot of extra money. We had six machines, are still under-resourced, I'd say, with regards to maintenance. And here we were. We had a contract with a contractor, so the principal contractor had a contract with BHP, and we were subbing to them to deliver the service of providing equipment. And this character walked out on me, and I distinctly remember it. It was a Saturday morning phone call. On Sunday, I jumped in the car and drove for 12 hours and turned up in a place called Dysart. And on Monday morning, I'm standing at the toolbox, the proud owner of six scrapers and six wonderful operators with no idea. (laughs) That was the 20th of September, 2009.
0: What was going through your mind then? Are you just thinking, I don't know how in hell I'm going to make this work, but I've got to make it work somehow. Like, was the bloke that left the one with more on-ground knowledge or something? Well, that was my understanding until he left, and then <laughs> enter Colin Ritson,
1: ex-theatre nurse, ex-builder. Here I am, armed with a claw hammer and a pen. I'm going to make this show work, and it was either make it work or go broke. So it's probably been the most stressful moment in my life because in debt to the eyeballs and no idea.
0: And how many years in was this? Five. So I suppose how did you get through it? Like were there people that you lent on? Were you just scrambling for knowledge anywhere you could find it? How did you deal with coming into an industry thinking that you had a bit of a support system that then has kind of pulled the rug out from underneath you? How did you deal with the stress that comes with not only being in a new industry but knowing next to nothing about it or how to deliver in it?
1: So I'd been pretty successful in my property development and I was reasonably well off external to this earth moving business. But the concept of losing all of that over one mistake didn't sit well. And I looked around and I thought, why are we in this situation? I look around and I see people making very good living out of doing what they do. Why are we in this situation? So I rolled through the gate, cap in hand, and went and saw the people that we were working for and said, tell me what you need, tell me what you want. And they could see that there was an attitude change and they were very helpful. Mine is traditionally are very hardcore big egos, but these group of people could see that I was intent on providing the service for them. But I had to ask everything. I had no idea. No one had a smartphone. Back in those days, they, you had a mobile phone, but it wasn't a smartphone, so you couldn't Google. If you said to me, Oh, can you give me a sixteen H I remember? I actually think they asked if we had a nine eighty. And I and I, I said, nine eighty, what's a nine eighty? I'd ask. I didn't know what a nine eighty was. Yeah. And same with the 16H. I didn't know what a 16H was. I didn't know any, none of the lingo I knew. Yeah. You know? well, but now, if someone asks you something, you can make it, you know, you can Google it and work out and then <laughs> take the way through. It couldn't be that back then. Yeah. And I wasn't, certainly wasn't too proud to ask. It was either make this work or go break. So there were quite a few people that were really quite helpful and gave me a lot of direction and support back in those days. So in the next two years, we went from six machines to 12 machines. And of course, once you hang around with the people, to know the language and you understand how it all works and who's who in the zoo, you can source some good fitters and some maintenance facilities, and then you realize that hey, we need a bit of real estate, so you can lease a bit of land, and that gives you a presence, and then you can buy some of the other stuff you need. And just up until then, I was running the show out of a Mack Camp dongle here in town, you know.
0: So, do you think, looking back to the way the industry was when you came into it, do you think it would be harder today for young people getting started in, in getting work and getting started as a company owner than it was for you back then?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I think it was harder for us than it was for people 10 years earlier back when we started. But absolutely, the Mining Act and the Mining Regulations now prescribe a lot of activity that has to be adhered to and that creates with it a whole range of complexities that you need to be able to set yourself up with people to administer what the mining companies require and that is not for the faint-hearted so you would never roll into town and don't think and do what we did now unless you had someone very focused on making it work for you in a support place in a mine that could give you some support because yeah it's very very different world now
0: it's almost to the point where you need the admin in place before a digger or a tooth hits the dirt, because to, oh, yeah. to get on site with a lot of these places, you need so much QA, so much admin, so much red tape and bullshit to even get on site. Somebody getting started in this industry would have to invest in things a lot different than somebody maybe would have 30 years ago, whereas with you and even my old man, it was a backhoe and a border collies how he started, whereas yeah, today, yeah, it'd yeah. be like contracts admin. You're <laughs> it's a different ballgame.
1: Yeah, well, we're about to mobilise to a site our here now, a non BNA site. They sent somebody over yesterday to inspect eight machines before we even wheel through the gate because they want us to put this on and do that and change that, put a bit of tape here, pull that off, put it up there and turn that pick. And We need orange lights or we need green light. Every month's got a different requirement. It just goes on and on and on. So you've got to have people that can do that. Then you've got to submit a CMS, Contractor Management Statement, and that's got to list everything that goes through the gate. And you cannot back a piece of equipment off the float on the site
0: until you have those things in place. What would you suggest for somebody wanting to start a business in this industry now? Like, how would you go about it if you were starting again? Yeah, I don't know. You probably wouldn't start. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have to have a lot of financial backing. You really need a relationship
1: with somebody in a mindset that's going to give you the opportunity because we've grown our business and we've taken other contractors Other smaller contractors work because we provide the support that the mines want, whereas the other contractor hasn't. And it's not that they're any lesser Mm. contractor on the ground, but they want maintenance history. Like you have an incident on the mine side here, the very first thing they want, every record of everything that you've done on that machine. We had a machine burned down, which wasn't our fault actually, it was a quick fill on a digger we recovered the machine, but they want all your history, all your maintenance, all your records of every incident, and we have a very, very good team that delivers that. We've been invited to attempt for a lot of jobs because that's what the minds want. They want to know that they've got every base covered if there's an incident. It's all driven
0: by incidents. No one wants an incident. What have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned as you've been growing this business, and what have the circumstances that have led to those big lessons being learned? There's multiple lessons. I think one of the reasons for our success in this
1: industry in this part of the world, I attribute to the fact that we came here with no knowledge and we came here with a willingness to ask the question. We recently employed an office girl. She came out of a takeaway facility in town here. She sat in my office and she says, but I don't know anything about mining. And I just said, when we interviewed her, I said, Have I got a story for you? (laughs) And I think it's all about (laughs) the attitude. So the biggest lesson is if you come with the attitude of tell me what I need to do and we'll make it work, because most people are smart. They can work stuff out if they give them the opportunity. Don't ever go to a site thinking you know it all and you'll tell them how to do it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's probably 90% of the reason for your success. You've come into an industry where you had no choice but to adapt, learn, and get scrappy with things and i think that's a pretty good lesson for people to learn like the day you stop learning is the day that you're basically in the grave isn't
1: it yeah that's right yeah it's quite funny because to walk into and see our show now we've got 130 or 40 machines we've got 150 people and there's people to do everything and if some of the people that see me today knew that i was lying on my back under that scraper in 2004 changing the tires and putting the wheel seals on and assisting the fitters lifting the ring gears in and they don't get it. They don't think that. They see me as some guru of this business, but they forget that I can actually operate everything I own and happy to jump on a forklift or do whatever's got to be done to get the thing back to work. I don't get the opportunity you know, because I'm busy doing so much other stuff, but it's, it's helped if you can do that.
0: I think the biggest shock for people would be imagining that you were, you were a nurse. <laughs>
1: I, had, I had a family friend turn up about five years ago and he just could not get it. He said, explain to me how you go from managing operating room
0: to here. (laughs) Yeah. Has that experience influenced how you approach safety within the company? Like, do you think having the background that you've had has brought a different approach to the way you've implemented systems around safety or first aid or anything like that within the company?
1: Not so much safety first aid. That behaviour is driven a lot by the Act and the regulations for coal hmm. But I believe that my time in a senior role in an operating room complex gave me the skills. I didn't realise at the time. Well, I'm just doing the job. But when you're dealing with yeah. consultants across a range of specialties who are the most important people in the world, and you have to manage them and a range of operating room staff, a whole range of complexities that gives you skills to deal with a whole range of other issues that At the time, I didn't realise, but I look back and think, well, now, those skills learned have carried through to many other aspects of the business we run today.
0: Because the construction industry is kind of notorious for, you touched on it before, like culture's a big issue. And I think for a large extent, like that is driven by constructors generally fairly ego-driven as well. Because there's a real hierarchy in hospitals, you know, generally... At the bottom of the pecking order and and doctors what they say goes and you never question yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. i was i was really curious to know how that translates to the construction yeah. industry
1: yeah well, well i got a bit of a buzz out of because this is how we run our show here you'll comply with this and there's no negotiation it's just this is what we do and you'll fit in and so i think it's the ability to actually manage those types of people certainly carries through to how you manage and conduct yourself here because this game this game is about people the equipment and yeah. the dirt's easy stuff, mate. Anybody can go and buy a bit of equipment and move the dirt around. That doesn't talk back, doesn't create any issues, doesn't have any mental health issues, doesn't have any sickness. <laughs> it's the people. And it's the relationship with the people. Like when I said, I, I rolled up here and I had to cap in hand, go and see the people at this first mine site and say, mate, well, help me out. What do you need? That's where the success is. You can go and buy it,
0: turn up here the next week with a machine, park it on the side of the road and look for a job. That's the easy bit. It's the relationships and how you deal with people that'll get you to the next level. Absolutely. Every time. All right. No worries. Again, I've really enjoyed having this chat. I appreciate your time and appreciate you coming on the, on the podcast and being so candid with things. Have a good rest of your day. You've been listening to the Crushing It in Construction podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player and it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about employer branding and recruitment marketing strategy, feel free to visit our website at moonshotmedia.com.au or reach out to me directly at jaskinner at moonshotmedia.com.au. Thanks again for listening, and I'll speak to you in the next episode of Crushing It in Construction.